My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Tracy Allen Zorns. February 19th, 2010, Tracy and some friends were hanging out at an apartment in Moorhead, Minnesota, drinking. Tracy left when an argument broke out. When he returned, he says the apartment was on fire and he fled in a panic. Three days later, 38-year-old Tracy was wanted for the murders of his two friends, 20-year-old John Kadat and 25-year-old Megan Londo. They were stabbed and beaten before the apartment was set on fire. After a 14-day manhunt, Tracy was arrested. He was eventually tried, convicted, and sentenced to life without parole for the murders. But years later, a PI and a cop are trying to get the word out that Tracy is innocent, and they have uncovered who they believe the real killer is. So why is Tracy still in prison? And who did kill Megan Londo and John Kadat? We'll get to that after this. Y'all already know I am absolutely obsessed with Daily Harvest. They save my butt all the time. Like literally right now, I am too busy to get up from my computer to make food. So I went into my freezer. I grabbed a harvest bowl. This one is the chickpeas atar harvest bowl. Popped it in the microwave. And in just five minutes, I have delicious farm fresh food frozen at peak ripeness to lock in nutrients and taste. Daily Harvest delivers delicious food built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. With Daily Harvest, there's an option for any time of the day, smoothies for breakfast, flatbreads for lunch or dinner, and comfort food when the weather starts to cool down like right now. There's soups and harvest bowls like the one I'm eating. Daily Harvest makes it easy to eat clean, undeniably delicious food no matter what your day brings. Keep it simple with Daily Harvest. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code UNJUST to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code UNJUST for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Dailyharvest.com. 
When Tracy's case was first brought to me and I initially searched it, there was nothing online about his innocence, which is unusual for cases that I cover. In fact, all of the news articles online were damning and they looked really bad for Tracy. And to be clear, at least one of the victims has family members who believe strongly that Tracy is guilty. The truth is, though, that happens a lot, even in cases where charges have been dropped and suspects released. We hate upsetting victims' family members. I always think about them. But the alternative is to ignore issues in the case. And this isn't just about one suspect in one case. It's about a system that makes it incredibly difficult to get anyone to even look at claims of innocence after someone has been convicted. As you know, I set a pretty high bar for the kinds of cases I look at. They need to have a private investigator or be retained by an innocence project. They basically have to be vetted multiple times over because right now I'm not investigating as much as I'd like. I'm just trying to get the word out. And with Tracy's case, I didn't have any of these usual bars that I go into a case with, at least to start. I found out about some things later. But I had his advocate, Alicia, hounding me to look at his case. Yeah, I'm definitely making enemies of people who don't do their due diligence in doing their duty in investigating or properly documenting the information that they have as a police officer. That's because Alicia is law enforcement herself. My concern is that everywhere I look, I see people who aren't taking their job seriously enough. Alicia graduated from the Chippewa Valley Tech Police Academy in Eau Claire, Wisconsin in 2001. She's a certified police officer. However, she was not in the force long because she got pregnant. So instead, she switched to nursing. And after she retired, she started looking into wrongful convictions because she told me she has seen some corruption in her time on the force and she wanted to do something about it. She has been working on Tracy's case for about three years. Tracy is Native American, which Alicia believes played a huge part in his arrest and conviction. I've moved up to the many county area that includes his reservation. And I can tell you that there is a really bad relationship between law enforcement and um, the White Earth Reservation. And I feel, this is just my personal opinion, but I feel that they have a bias against Native Americans. Um, and so Tracy being a person living on the reservation um, who had a record, they just tunnel visioned on him. He was someone they knew, they recognized his face, they did not do any any form of due diligence whatsoever in investigating this crime. None. I mean, it's, it breaks my heart. Alicia helped me a lot with this case. It's really complicated, particularly how being Native American plays into it, which we'll get to. And the more I dug into Tracy's case, the more I started to see what she saw. And I couldn't stop digging. There was something very troubling about what happened to Tracy. And after I talked to him for the first time, I had to find out what? Thank you for using GTL. Hello? Hey, Tracy. Oh, good morning. Um, did you receive my email? I did. I didn't get a chance to read it yet. I've been looking at all of your documents today, so I have a ton of questions for you. Okay. Tracy Allen Zorns was born in Bagley, Minnesota in November of 1971. He is the youngest boy of six kids. His family moved around a lot. His father was in the army. 
and they were living in St. Paul, actually, when his father was murdered during an altercation. My mother was an alcoholic. She, she was in out of treatment for a while, so we were back and forth. We moved, we moved back up on, up on res with my grandma and grandpa after that and lived up there for most of, well, I guess, most of life. By res, he means the White Earth Indian Reservation. It covers about 1,300 square miles in northwestern Minnesota. Tracy and his family are part of the Ojibwe, or Chippewa, tribe. In their own language, they call themselves Ashinabe, which means original person. And Tracy grew up and lived on the reservation his whole life. Tracy says his mom got sober in 1981, when he was about 10. She wasn't able to work much raising five kids, and they lived off of Social Security and his father's vet money. A few years before Tracy says his mom got sober, he dropped out of school. The last public school grade I went to was four. After that, it was mostly a lot of skipping school and institution learning. I guess most of my learning comes from reading and self-study. Tracy is incredibly smart. He did eventually get his GED years down the road and enrolled in college. I tried to go to college, but I couldn't, uh, I just couldn't maintain the schedule and show up school all the time. I did get a charity grade from my English writing, so I didn't fail completely. So Tracy mostly worked. And he also got in a bit of trouble with the law. Did you do time for anything? Oh, yeah. The only thing I could find was a a DWI. Huh, that's strange. No, I've, I've I've got a long criminal record for, I don't know, various burglaries and thefts. And this is why I was so drawn to Tracy, because I just find him to be incredibly honest. He could have just lied and said, yep, that's it. I knew quite a few of of the Menomen police over the years. A couple of them, you know, tried to talk to me to steer me straight or something. How come you didn't steer, quote, straight? You know, what... um, what do you think was going on? You know, when you look back at your life, do you think you would have done things differently? I mean, I, I've certainly had a lot of time to think about it. There's a couple of things going on. One, one was, you know, I was I was a little baby when my father got killed, and that kind of like I was abandoned or something. He also wonders if there was another underlying issue listening to some news programs recently and they were talking about like autism and I mean that's not not saying I am or as an excuse or anything like that but some of my behaviors kind of reflect toward the end of what they call that spectrum or whatever that I don't talk much or talk to a lot of people. Tracy is really quiet as you can tell. He told me he's an introvert, but he's also really friendly. And he did have friends and intimate relationships. Valentine's week of 2010, Tracy was visiting his on and off again girlfriend, 38-year-old Elizabeth Ann McPherson in Moorhead, Minnesota. At the time, Tracy was living with his sister in Natawash on the reservation. Looking at the map, that's really far from... Yeah. Yeah, it's like 80 miles. So what were you doing out there? Were you just going to be there for the night? or? Well, it was Valentine's Day. 
Because mm. we were, I was supposed to go the evening before, but you guys wanted to go to the bar, so I went to the bar instead and caught a ride on that Sunday. There's the Wesley Center, it's an Indian center up there, and there's the couple people I was going to show them how to make some moccasins. Tracy says moccasin making is super important to him and his culture, and he learned it from his mom. When did you have that planned for? Uh, I mean, anytime, mostly anytime over there, but I was too uh, inebriated all week. Was that normal for you to drink that much and that often? Uh, pretty much. I mean, yeah, I, I would... Everybody would tell you I'm pretty much an alcoholic. Although Native Americans make up only 1.7% of the United States population, they experience substance abuse at a much higher rate than other ethnic groups. And we'll get to why in a moment. And of course, we know that alcohol leads to poor decision-making. At the time 38-year-old Tracy was in Moorhead visiting his girlfriend, he also had a warrant from two years prior for first-degree burglary and possessing a gun as a felon. The felony was from his DUI conviction. Tracy is accused of stealing a truck, a four-wheeler, five guns, and a computer from a home. At the time he was in Moorhead, he was trying to avoid the police because he was facing serious charges, 25 years, and he wanted to avoid it. Now, I want to get into what is going on with Tracy. And to start, he is not an outlier in his behavior. The alcoholism, the burglary, the crimes. Our boys, our young men, a lot of them have criminal histories by the time they're 12, 13, 14. Many of them have felony records by the time they're 18. This is Bob Shimek. Well, Joe went in a way, my gun in the Robert Chimek and Dijanakaz, and he makes an equipment to go. Augusto Manasseh, Gawa Baba Kanaka, Gashkonigan, and Dunjaba. Hello, all my relatives. My name is Robert Chimek. I am from the Kingfisher clan, and the spirits know me as Thundercloud, and I live on the White Earth Indian Reservation. Is that what you just said in Ojibwe? Yeah. I spoke to Bob because to understand this case, I think it's important to have a fundamental understanding of Native Americans, not only in the White Earth area, but also across the country. You know, there's been a long history of tension between Natives and non-Natives, and a lot of it has to do with treaties, rights guaranteed by treaties, or denial thereof. Bob is a treaty rights advocate. And he explained to me that, as many of us are now aware, the disenfranchisement of Native Americans started when colonizers stripped them of their land, committed genocide, and forced them onto reservations. We also denied Native Americans the right to own their land. Under the modern economic system, you know, land ownership, property, so to speak, those who are proper owners and have proper title, to land can leverage that land for money, for mortgages, for loans. And because they can't own land, Native Americans have also been monetarily disenfranchised. They have the highest rate of poverty of any racial group, almost twice the national average. And with poverty comes higher rates of suicide, alcoholism, as I mentioned, and crime. 
And White Earth, where Bob and Tracy are from, is the poorest reservation in Minnesota. You know, a lot of our kids go to these mixed school districts where there's some Indians, but there's also a lot of white people. So it gets into a situation of so many of our young people looking at the privilege, the power, the possessions that a lot of the non-native kids have. You know, when these kids try to be equal in terms of possessions, wealth, status that comes with possessions, you know, many turn to some level of crime, but also as a means of um, survival, just to put food on the table. Okay, and yeah, our kids get desperate. And I just want to note that we don't have good data on how much crime or the types of crime predominantly committed by Native Americans because they are lumped in the, quote, other group when those statistics are compiled. Jurisdiction gets messy, too. Usually crimes committed on a reservation fall under the FBI, while crimes off the reservation are handled by the state. And jurisdiction is a whole other issue we're not going to get into. So not only did we strip Native Americans of their ability to hold wealth and criminalize them at a young age, preventing them from getting living wage jobs, thus perpetuating the cycle of poverty, but even further, Bob says that we tried to strip them of their culture, language history, ceremony, song, and dance. We literally stole Native children from their parents and put them in residential boarding schools to assimilate them and, quote, civilize them. That kind of underscored, you know, the division, the subdivision, the marginalization, the racism, and the oppression. And although the boarding school era was decades ago, Native American children are still placed in foster homes at an alarming rate. And yet it is incredibly rare that any of these issues gain a national spotlight. At the end of the day, we are economically, intellectually, spiritually, and physically impoverished. And all of this historical trauma to Native Americans still plays out today, not only in foster care, crime, poverty, and substance abuse, But many people might have heard of MMIW, or Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Native women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than other ethnicities. According to the CDC, it's the third leading cause of death of Native women. And the majority of these murders are committed by non-Native people on Native-owned land, including law enforcement. Native Americans are killed in police encounters at a higher rate than any other racial or ethnic group, according to the CDC. You know, there's this blue wall, this blue wall that protects officers. You can get away with the harassment. You can get away with the threats. You can get away with the intimidation. I think that's 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 the biggest challenge. You know, I think, um, you know, we've been subjugated. We've been dehumanized we've been objectified for so long again it's 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 business as usual it's like if somebody's beating up their dog and nobody else sees it they get away with it 
Just last year, Vernon May, a 34-year-old native man from the Ojibwe tribe, was killed during a traffic stop by a local Bemidji police officer, creating a massive backlash from the native community. Remember shooting death of a Red Lake man. Bemidji is a town in northern Minnesota, sandwiched between three Ojibwe reservations, including White Earth. Its population is about 13,000, according to the last census, with about 80% of the population being white. You know, I always look to Beltrami County and the city of Bemidji as being kind of the armpit of racism for northern Minnesota, because there, it seems like it never goes away. There is always something going on um, in terms of race relations. And so that is the historical and cultural climate that Tracy was arrested and prosecuted under in Moorhead, which was about 90% white and also sandwiched between reservations. Which is why I think it is so important to contextualize Tracy's situation. I'm not making excuses for anyone's crimes, but the context is important to what happened the evening of February 19th, 2010. The night before, Tracy was hanging out with Liz, his girlfriend. Remember, it was Valentine's week and he was 80 miles from his home. He was in Moorhead to teach moccasin making. Tracy's friend from the reservation, Megan Londo, was also in Moorhead. I mean, I've known Megan. I, well, I would guess most of her life, Megan was, well, I don't know, not married, but she was together with one of my cousins for years, and they have two children together. The the kids live with my aunt. Wow. So she was, like, basically family to you. Yeah. Yeah. Megan also lived next door to Tracy's sister on the reservation in Natawash. By all accounts, Megan was one of Tracy's good friends. That same Valentine's week in 2010, Megan was also in Moorhead, staying with her fiancé's sister, Cassie. Megan was looking to move to Moorhead and get her life together. At the time, she was trying to stay clean and sober to regain custody of her children. The night of the 19th, Cassie was not staying at her apartment, but Cassie's friend John Cadot was. At 9.08 p.m., Megan called Liz, Tracy's girlfriend, looking for Tracy. Tracy didn't have a phone at the time and he said he got into an argument with Liz and sometime around nine, the time of the call, he grabbed his bead and moccasin bag and went to meet up with Megan. That night, Megan, John and Tracy were all hanging out at Cassie's apartment drinking and it's unclear if they were doing pills, but there were some texts about getting some. At some point in the night, there was an argument between Megan and Cassie about Tracy being at the apartment. Allegedly, Cassie didn't want anyone else there unless she was there. Tracy said at this point he decided to leave. If there's a situation where somebody wants to start something or create an argument, I, I leave. There's no reason for me to, to be there, subject myself to it. Tracy says he grew up very traditional. Follow the native ways, behaviors, I guess. I mean, I tried to. I never, I can't say I've ever been the model of everything or anything, but I always tried to act correctly. My criminal record doesn't reflect that, but my behavior, I think, certainly does. The main thing was to try to treat the people around you with kindness, courtesy, and respect. 
and I think I've always done done pretty well with that, regardless of whatever else I was doing. So Tracy says confrontation was something he always avoided. In fact, only one incident I could find on his rap sheet even involves another person, and it is all the way back on this extensive rap sheet back to 1989. So yeah, I buy it. He avoided confrontation. Although Tracy admit to me that he now understands how entering someone's home to commit burglary can also impact a person's sense of safety and well-being. Anyway, the argument between Megan and Cassie was so heated, Tracy says he thought the cops might be called and he was trying to avoid them. So there was kind of this argument going on and I was just scared, paranoid. I couldn't be there because if the police showed up, I was going to jail. And then I would have to face the Becker County thing. Tracy didn't have a car, so he took John's car, since John was staying at the apartment. Where'd you go after you left? Over to the other apartment building where Liz was. But in that one, you needed a key to get in the door. Tracy says he couldn't get into Liz's apartment. Liz was so upset from their argument that she says she took 10 to 12 Ambien pills and some Tylenol PM and was completely out until the next morning. And I can't help but think if she didn't and Tracy was let into the apartment that he wouldn't be in prison. So that's where I passed out at because by this time, I mean, I'd already been drinking for, well, all week, but at least for most of the prior two days. Tracy says he passed out in the parking lot in John's car. Back at Cassie's apartment, neighbors said they heard loud arguing around 2.24 a.m. And another neighbor says they heard what sounded like sex sounds around 5 a.m. Turns out what they probably heard was the murder. Tracy says he woke up in the car in the early morning hours around 7 a.m. and saw Cassie's apartment on fire. And he panicked. That's when fire trucks and everything else and I just fled you know that's kind of that's kind of what I do it wasn't a conscious of guilt fleeing I've been running my entire life anybody that knows me will tell you that Tracy went back to his sisters and hoped everything was all right three days later he found out he was wanted in the brutal stabbing beating and arson murder of Megan Londo and John Cadott After he found out he was a suspect, Tracy fled to the woods to hide from the police again. Familiar with making native sweat lodges, Tracy borrowed some tools from a friend and made a shelter. Tracy says he was scared and figured if he waited it out, the police would find who really did it and forget about him. But that's not what happened. Police enlisted the help of the U.S. Marshal Service. And after a wide-scale manhunt, they found Tracy and apprehended him on March 4th, 2010, two weeks after the murder. Tracy was arrested and charged by the state of Minnesota with two counts of first-degree premeditated murder and arson. At trial, the prosecution had only circumstantial evidence linking Tracy to the crime. A full rape kit was done on Tracy, which includes taking DNA, and nothing came back that linked Tracy to the crime. In fact, the entire case rested on circumstantial evidence. Because they knew their local boy. They knew their local boy was a fellow from the White Earth Reservation, and they knew that he had done minor 
you know, thieving type crimes. This is Alicia again, former police officer and nurse. She says they also bolstered their case by making Tracy out to look like a monster. There's a real flavor of racism. There's a flavor of a savage would do this. There's no other good way to say it, but that's the flavor you get when you read the trial transcript. In his recent appeals, Tracy claims racial bias of a few jurors, including one woman who called Native Americans, quote, them people. Tracy says from what he can tell, everyone in the courtroom was not Native. He didn't even have an interpreter. Tracy spoke English fine, but his Native language is Ojibwe. In some legal terms, could have been misinterpreted. This just adds to the lack of sensitivity towards Native people in the courtroom. The only evidence that was provided at trial were the tools found at Tracy's campsite when he was apprehended, a knife and a hammer. And when Alicia first looked at this case, this stood out to her. First thing I noticed was that what they were saying was the weapon um, was much, much larger than, um, you know, the actual wounds on the victims. And I thought it was interesting because I'm also a registered nurse with, you know, 30 years of experience. Actually, the weapons were never said to be the murder weapons. It was just implied. But Alicia is right. Years after trial, an independent forensic pathologist looked at what was found at Tracy's campsite compared to the wounds on Megan and John and concluded that the weapons introduced at trial would not make those wounds. She excluded them as being the murder weapons. Tracy's lawyers tried to get the knife suppressed as its introduction was prejudicial to him, but it was denied. The other evidence was also circumstantial. A smoke alarm found in John's car, which Tracy had, was implied to be the one missing from the apartment. And Alicia wonders about this. Okay, well, I'll just digress even further and I'll just tell you this. Prior to this, I was dating after my divorce and I did go on some dates with people who are law enforcement in this area. And I had one guy brag to me about how he framed many people who are Native Americans and he was a white guy. She thinks it's possible it was planted. Because I work on so many other cases, I will say that uh, obviously it went through my mind that the police might have planted things. Because they get tunnel vision and they will actually sometimes plant evidence to make it look like somebody did something. And I'm not saying that that's what happened in this case, but I'm saying that I considered it as a possibility because I've seen it happen in other cases. And so besides those two very circumstantial pieces of evidence, there was nothing else linking Tracy to the murders besides the fact that he was at the apartment that night and his friends died, but he didn't. The prosecution didn't even have a motive. And they say they don't have to prove motive, which is true, but still begs the question. Why would Tracy kill his friends? All the prosecution says is that Tracy was the only one with the means and opportunity to kill Megan and John. Tracy's trial lasted six days, and the jury deliberated only an hour before they returned on March 9th, 2011, with two guilty verdicts of first-degree murder in the stabbing and beating deaths of 25-year-old Megan Londo and 20-year-old John Cadott. Tracy was sentenced to life in prison without parole. You know, one of your close friends or, you know, family members died, and then now here you are serving time for it. All of this time, I mean, I just, uh, I just imagined that they would find out what happened, you know, that 
I didn't have anything to do with it. So it never, I mean, it, it's just hard to imagine being in this situation right now because of it. Yeah. You'd think that if they would have done more investigation, they would have discovered more. But once they found my name, they just focused all their attention on me. Now, I would agree that it made sense for police to look at Tracy. If you have three people hanging out and two die, of course, the one who survived is going to be the front and center suspect. And this is what I started telling you earlier. But the closer I looked into this case, the more questions I had. For one, investigators, including Tracy's own defense investigator, didn't look at anyone else but Tracy. And tunnel vision is indeed what they had. Because there was, in fact, another person at the apartment who had the means and motive to kill Megan and John. It's tough. I mean, he looks pretty guilty. Did he run when he found out they were looking for him? Yep. Because that's what he does. You know, he's been in and out of prison. He knows the deal. He knew he was going to go for a long time. This is Suzanne McComas. She's been a licensed private investigator since 1997. But did he kill these two people that he knew and was friends with the girl. He'd been friends with her for years. Friends with her family. No. No, he did not. And I I don't ever, I'm never going to think that he did it. Suzanne worked for six years in law enforcement, and among her many other accomplishments, she worked as a PI for America's Most Wanted. You make the call, we make the capture. America's Most Wanted. Suzanne knows her shit. He's a career criminal. Uh, but he's a thief. You know, he never hurt anybody. And I couldn't find anybody in the tribe that could even remember a time where he ever hurt anybody. I mean, I found people that he babysat their kids. Yeah. You know? (laughs) So he was never violent. Suzanne took Tracy's case pro bono in 2016. Coming out of your investigation, do you believe in his innocence? I, oh, I absolutely believe that he's innocent of these homicides, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he killed these people. What is the best evidence that you came across of his innocence? The eyewitnesses that uh, uh, described what they heard downstairs, and the one guy in particular saw the person leaving that, uh, you know, had actually set the fire, heard the door close and heard the guy leave out the door. And he looked out the window to see who it was because it was a weird time of the night. One of the upstairs neighbors saw someone leaving the downstairs apartment around the time the fire was set. This guy that he saw walking away was short, heavy set, had on a puffer jacket. And it stuck with him because he said those weren't really ones that you see very much. Those big, heavy, quilted puffer jackets. He said he looked like the Michelin Man. Hmm. And I guarantee you nobody would ever looked at Tracy and thought Michelin Man. Earlier in the day, Tracy was seen on surveillance camera shopping with friends. Tracy is tall. He's a good six foot, skinny, very lean. And he had on a black leather jacket and had very long hair that he braided in the back. One braid went down the back and because he's native. It didn't match him at all. And... It did match uh, somebody else that had access to the apartment. So that was what made me want to hang in there and kind of dig in deeper and see if I could find out 
you know, who had really done it. And uh, I did identify a suspect. Again, we don't want to name names, but Suzanne did identify someone. And he is named in one of Tracy's public appeal filings, which you can find. But for our purposes, we'll call him Mike. Mike is related to one of the people living at the apartment. And Suzanne thinks he actually went over to confront Megan about having people over. The argument Tracy described. How did you find out who was there that night? Because I'm a little fuzzy on that. You know, who exactly was at the apartment? Um, They interviewed the tenants that had rented about a month before. He got listed as one of the people that had been in the apartment. But they never seemed to do anything with him, which I thought was really odd. He was never on the radar at all. Um, he should have been. He was there. But he's, he doesn't appear in the police records as even being interviewed or being checked out. And there's something else really convincing for Suzanne about Mike. And when I dug into his background, it turned out that he was actually pending trial for another assault on another Native American woman uh, in the adjacent state that was almost a mirror image for injuries Mm. to what this female victim had. This female victim was hit right dead center in the forehead, like right between the eyes. And the girl that he had assaulted two months before over in North Dakota, um, he hit her right between the eyes. And that's, that's really rare to find somebody that does that. And it's just an odd place to hit somebody, you know, the the idea that that would just be a coincidence is, no, no, I think he did it. In fact, Mike has multiple domestic assault charges and convictions in both North Dakota and Minnesota. Have you, have you spoken to him? No, no, because when I... I don't have any authority um, in any kind of case as a private investigator. I'm no different than anybody else on the street. Suzanne says that her talking to one of these people could interfere later down the line if Tracy gets a new trial. And she's right. A DA would have a field day with it. However, Suzanne did speak to one of the witnesses, one of the people who lived in the apartment upstairs. He got very upset with me. I was there and we were, you know, talking about this again. And his statement to me was, um, look, I said what they told me to say, and I did what they told me to do, and that's all I'm doing. I said, uh, are, you, are you happy with that? And he said, well, I guess I got to be done. Mm. <laughs> well, now you can tell the truth, but okay. So I'd love to get him a new trial because well, there's some stuff that's going to come out this time that sure didn't come out the last time. But uh, it's very hard to get back in the court. And, you know, we've been trying. And so far, we haven't been successful. And so this is where Tracy and Suzanne are stuck now. They filed an appeal in 2016 with the new evidence that Suzanne discovered, including the forensic pathologist report saying the alleged weapons Tracy had did not cause the wounds on Megan and John. But it was not enough to get Tracy an evidentiary hearing or a new trial. So now we're between a rock and a hard place. And that's what happens in these cases. Yeah. You know, it's very hard, very hard to get them overturned. But 
I, I believe Tracy will eventually prevail, but I mean, it's, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a while. And, uh, you know, we just have to keep faith. I mean, I, I'm here for him for as long as he needs me. He knows that, um, you know, and, and if we get an attorney that can get us back into court, then we can get some of this in front of a judge. We might actually have a chance. Tracy wrote to the Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison, stating exactly this. I'm not asking you to let me out of prison or, or, or free me from punishment for any crime that I've committed. All I'm asking you for is to take a look at all of the evidence, you know, and give it a chance to be heard. Ellison's office just started a conviction review unit in partnership with the Great North Innocence Project. I also reached out to Ellison's office to ask about Tracy's letter, which he did not get a response to. I, too, have not heard back. At this point, Tracy is at a standstill. There's no force behind us. We can't make anybody talk to us or make anybody produce any documents or anything like that, you know? All we can do is look at what we have and ask questions, and that's not, uh, you know, that, that doesn't do anything. According to one of Tracy's appeals, he believes there was fingernail clippings taken from one of the victims to be tested for DNA. But it was either never tested or the results were withheld. Tracy isn't sure. He says he needs a lawyer to help him find out what happened to that evidence and get it tested if it hasn't been already. It's one of the biggest hopes for moving this case forward. Recently, the Great North Innocence Project agreed to review Tracy's case. A couple folks from there went to speak with Tracy in prison, but he's worried he didn't answer their questions well. He says he's just a paranoid person around authority and froze up, and he doesn't have hope they will take his case. I also reached out to them, and it's unclear when he will hear back. I realize it's probably part, partly my fault if I was able to talk to him more or, or explain myself better or something. Perhaps things mm-hmm. would have been different. Tracy says he doesn't talk much about his case, not even to family. Again, he's really introverted. He also knows that his case has divided the reservation. Some absolutely believe he's guilty, and these people flooded our inbox before the episode was even released. And they get upset when anyone even suggests there might be problems with the prosecution. Right now, Tracy says time is freeing up for him because he's nothing left to submit to the courts on his own. So he's going to start focusing his time back to painting. I thought what I can do is start painting again and try to gain some type of exposure or something. If people look at my paintings, then maybe there would be a link to my case or something to try to gain some exposure and some support. Beyond that, Tracy has spent 10 years in prison working on becoming a better person. For a majority of my life, if I wasn't incarcerated somewhere, I was drinking. You know, now I realize that that just takes us away from the community. And the the community, the natives, try to look out for each other. And we've went so far away from, from the teachings 
Right. And a lot of that has to do with the drinking and drugs. You're no longer participating in that spirituality or the way of life, at least not properly. Tracy is also working on his relationship with his kids. He has four. The youngest is 19. Were you, you know, part of their life as a father before you went to prison? Poorly. Poorly at best. When they were still younger, so their birthdays, Christmas, I'd make sure they always got something good, you know, whatever, whatever I could afford. He would do this from prison by selling his art. Tracy does beadwork, printmaking, and he paints. Full disclosure, I am currently trying to buy one of his eagle paintings. It is absolutely gorgeous. And Tracy says he also funded the forensic pathologist Suzanne hired, which was about $8,000. He did this from his art. And he says that took him a few years to pay. He says him and his kids speak on the phone now, but they're still working through some of their personal issues about him being an absent father. And Tracy says when he gets out, he wants to work on strengthening his Native community from the ground up, starting with kids. I think it's important to have some programs for children. Tracy says we need to allow children to discover and grow on their own and not just create, quote, clones of ourselves. That's what helps break the chain, he says. Part of this is working on combating the historical trauma that we talked about. Trauma that has led Tracy down the path he took. My great-grandma, she was the only one that that lived past childhood that made it to her teenage years. She had, uh, there was 11 kids and they all died from Spanish flu and stuff back, you know, mm-hmm. back in the early part of the century. And so these things affected her daughters. When her daughters were forced into boarding schools and stuff like that, so much more was taken from them from ill treatment and abuse and whatnot. And that's what my mother and and brothers and sisters and everybody inherited that. Like Tracy growing up without a dad, his kids have also grown up without a dad. And he didn't think anything of this when he had kids and was involved in criminal activity. I didn't think it harmed them because I can't, I don't know any other way, you know? He says because he grew up without a father, he was unable to empathize with the harm he was doing to his own kids. But now, now I realize how wrong I was. I wish things could have been different, but all I can do is try to move forward. So he wants to work as hard as possible to make sure future generations of children do break the cycle. We're not giving them a chance to make the changes that are necessary. There's a lot of, I mean, I think there's a lot of good people up there, but where I come from, it's just so hard. If you want to hear the full, uncut, in-depth discussion about these issues I talked about with Bob Schimek, head over to Patreon. 
If you want to help Tracy, you can sign his change.org petition or check out his art on Facebook at Zorn's Art, or you can write Tracy and show your support. I also urge you to send a letter in support to the Attorney General's office to look at Tracy's case in the new Conviction Review Unit. We have links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com. Thank you.